So go ahead and flip open in your Bible to Psalm 102. 102. And while you do that, I just want to say, I think that this theme of immutability fits nicely in our greater conversation uh, of developing convictions to live by based on the truth of who God is, which the book of James lays out so practically for us. Right? And you'll remember that it's James that actually closes the first chapter of his epistle with the doctrine of the immutability of God. He, he writes this, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom, catch, there is no variation or shifting shadow. He emphasizes the doctrine of the immutability of God to cap off a section where he's encouraging the believers to stay steadfast amidst a lot of different types of trial. And so he's emphasizing this doctrine, and I think what's taught there in James in more of a didactic form is really expressed here in the language of prayer in Psalm 102. So that's what we want to take a look at. So if you're there, let's just go ahead and read this. It's a little bit of a longer psalm, but I I think I'd like to read the whole thing, and then we'll just say a quick word of prayer, and we'll dive into it. Let's go ahead and read, follow along, Psalm 102, starting at the top. A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. And let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, For you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither away like grass. Verse 12. But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. 
I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies this morning. May we find in you, Lord, in your character, what we need to live a life that is worthy of the call by which you have called us. Teach us this morning, Lord, from your word. And we ask, Lord, that we would not only be hearers of it, but be diligent doers of it, so that you would receive honor and glory in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you take a look, the setting is pretty clear here. You've got a man who is desperate, right? You've got a man who is destitute. You've got a man who's depressed. He's looking out on the horizon of Zion or Jerusalem, and what he sees is a really bleak picture, is it not? Very bleak. He looks out on God's ravished nation, and he's in despair. And we know that um, the historical setting is probably the end of the Babylonian captivity. And if you know anything about the Babylonian captivity, obviously Jerusalem is wiped out. It's in ruins. And what we have here is kind of a disheartened patriot who is looking out on the ruins of Zion and looking out and noticing that the people of God are far from the blessings of home. He's desperate. He's destitute. He's afflicted, the prescript tells us, and he's depressed. So we see a faint man here. We also see a man that is full of faith despite his emaciated condition. Full of faith. Um, A man that by the end of this psalm is stunningly confident in Zion's restoration. He knows that God's place will never ultimately pass away The sun has not forever set on the people of God, and he has a bold confidence by the end of the psalm. There are brighter days for the people of God to come, and I'm going to argue that that confidence, which builds throughout the psalm, is all wrapped up in this doctrine of God's immutability, and that it's this characteristic, God's changelessness, and immutability, obviously, is just a fancy word for changelessness, that God's changelessness is the characteristic of God that actually makes prayer tenable because it's at the heart of what it means for God to be faithful and trustworthy. It's at the very core of what it means for God to be faithful and trustworthy. It's not a surprise that the timeless hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, starts like this. And no, I'm not going to sing it for you. I, I don't want everyone to leave. Um, Great is thy faithfulness, you guys know it, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee, thou changest not, thy compassions, they fail not, as thou hast been, what? Thou forever shalt be. 
So let's take a look at this a little bit more closely. Look with me at the prescript. And I just want to make a few comments about prayer briefly before we dive more into this, because I'm hoping that it will encourage you. So look at the prescript with me. I think this is really important. It says, a prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Now, prayer is many, many things. But one thing that prayer is undoubtedly is it's a pouring out. It's a pouring out. And this idea of pouring oneself out before the Lord was actually a very common Hebrew way to express the experience of prayer, especially for people who were going through great difficulty. And the Hebrew word to pour out really has the sense of to gush or to dump something. We are actually in the process of moving this weekend, so we had a rental uh, truck, and we were feverishly just chucking things in there, hoping something's not going to break yesterday. And um, my father-in-law and I were trying to disconnect the washing machine from our previous house. And uh, we thought we had turned the water off successfully, uh, turns out that we had not done that. So when we went to disconnect the hose, it started spraying us. And we were, had shields up trying to block the spray, and it was a big mess all over the garage. This is the sense of the idea to pour out, something to gush, something to dump. And this is really all over, especially the Old Testament. I just want to give you a couple of examples. Don't turn here for sake of time, but Psalm 42, 1 through 4. Listen to this. You guys know this psalm well. As the deer pants for the water brooks, this is a scene of desperation. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? And catch this. I remember these things and pour out my soul within me. Or Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. And lastly, in 1 Samuel 1, 15, you have the barren and mistreated Hannah. You guys remember that story? She uh, is unable to have children, and she goes up to the temple in Jerusalem and she goes up there with her husband, and she's in the temple praying, and she's, she's really stammering. Her lips are moving, but nothing's coming out. And the priest there, Eli, supposes that she's drunk, right? And this is her response to the priest. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman despairing in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. I've poured out my soul before the Lord. So prayer, and I want you to catch this. Prayer is in part a dumping out of our burdens upon the Lord. It's letting our hearts and souls gush out to him with a few things, with authenticity, with sincerity, and with faith. And we know from Scripture, and I want to focus on this for just a second. We know from Scripture that not all forms of prayer actually honor the Lord. So I want to just give you a list, and this, if you're writing, taking notes, this might be something helpful to write down. Here are four forms of prayer that are actually dishonoring to God. I want to contrast them with the the psalmist form of prayer here. 
So number one, and I'll give you some references. These are four types of prayer that dishonor the Lord. Number one, hypocritical prayer. We see this in Matthew 5, Mark 12, and Luke 20. This is public prayer, public prayer aimed at being seen as holy and put together by people. Right? This is moving your lips, but having a heart that is far from God. It's a hypocritical type prayer. Scripture tells us that the Lord hates that sort of prayer. Number two, empty and faithless prayer. In Matthew 6, 7, Jesus says, stop heaping up empty phrases like the pagans do. This is platitudes in prayer. This is long-winded chatter, blubbering repetition. This is autopilot prayer with with actually no conviction that your prayer is actually going to accomplish anything. Thank you for this food, Lord. This is autopilot prayer. This is meaningless repetition. It's empty. It's faithless. It doesn't actually believe God has any of the resources to do anything about it. It just goes on autopilot. It's just platitudes. It's just Christianese. Jesus says, stop doing that. Empty, faithless prayer. Number three, irresolute, non-persistent prayer. Irresolute, non-persistent prayer. We see two different parables in Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 18 that both Jesus is teaching really the essentially the same thing. You have the parable of the persistent friend at midnight just knocking on the door, go away, go away. Um, And then you have uh, the parable of the persistent widow with the unrighteous judge. And really the, the meaning of those parables is the same. It's don't lose heart in prayer. Prayer is hard especially when you're going through great difficulty. But Jesus says, keep knocking, keep seeking. You'll find, right? So Lord does not uh, like hypocritical prayer. He doesn't like empty, faithless prayer. It dishonors him. He doesn't enjoy irresolute or non-persistent prayer. He enjoys prayer that does not lose heart. And then fourth and finally, self-sufficient prayer. We see this in Luke 18 as well, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And I know you guys know this well. The Pharisee stands there and he rehearses for God all the bad things that he's not and all the good things that he is. And he says, I'm so glad that I'm not like these people. And then you have the tax collector, the publican, who what? He stays far off from the temple. He beats his breast and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's very clear What Jesus says at the end of that parable, he says, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. And the conclusion is obvious is that the other man didn't, right? Because he was sufficient. He was self-sufficient in his prayer. So clearly there are types of prayer that dishonor God. I just listed four for you. Hypocritical prayer, faithless prayer, non-persistent prayer, and uh, self-sufficient prayer. But what does honor the Lord, conversely, is letting your heart and soul pour out to him, gush out to him, pouring out your complaint with sincerity and faith. So I would just say to you this morning, just on more of a pastoral note from a non-pastor, if you're hurting this morning and you're pouring out your burdens upon the Lord, you're honoring the Lord. You're honoring. So continue to do that. Continue to pour out your burden upon the Lord. But remember, here's one caveat. Pouring out your complaint and complaining are not synonymous. Pouring out your complaint 
and complaining are not the same thing. Pouring out your complaint, listen very closely, is an exercise of faith. Believing that God does have in himself the resources, the answers, the joy, the tranquility of heart that you're looking for. Complaining is an exercise of unbelief, treating God as if he doesn't actually rule and reign over all the difficulties and intricacies of your life. So they're not the same. Philippians 4 reminds us that we're to pray with thanksgiving and we're to present our request to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in what kind of circumstances? All circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So here's a summary statement. Prayer can be both raw and unrefined and messy and still infused with deep faith. Still infused. In fact, I would go as far as to say that this is one of the marks of a true redeemed child of God. And I would just ask you, friends, in difficulty, do you run to God believing that he has the answers and the resources that you so desperately need? Or do you run to something that's not God, like entertainment, and you just find your moping tree next to Elijah and Jonah? What do you do? Do you pour out your complaint And I think what we see here is a man in Psalm 102 who, listen, has great faintness and great faith. And I'm going to argue that those two things are not mutually exclusive. So let's look at it. We'll look at it in two parts. First part, uh, verse 1 through 11, and the second part, verses 12 through 28, The first part is really full of unrelenting moaning, groaning, and weeping as you have this paralyzed patriot looking out on the state of Israel and of Jerusalem more particularly, and all he can do is groan and moan. Let's get a sense of this. Look at verse 3. We're just going to highlight verses 3 through 7 here. I want you to look at this with me so you can get a state or an understanding of the state of this man. Verse 3 For my days have been consumed in smoke. Think about smoke in the eyes. This is a picture of confusion. Can't can't make up up from down, left from from right. I'm totally confused. My life is filled with smoke. This is a mental distress. He goes on in verse 3. And my bones have been scorched like a hearth. Not only is his life full of confusion, a mental distress, but his life is full of sickness and pain and a physical distress. The hearth is the part of the fireplace that's most unrelentingly exposed to the heat of the flame. Saying my life is is confusion. My life is full of physical pain and suffering and sickness. He goes on verse four, my heart has been smitten like grass and is withered away. This is an emotional distress. My life is full of sadness. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a a pelican of the wilderness. I've become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My life is void of all the blessings of friendship and companionship. This is a relational distress. So think of this. His life is full of confusion, a mental distress. His life is full of sickness and pain, a physical distress. His life is full of sadness and emotional distress. 
and his life is void of the blessings of friendship and companionship or relational distress. Can't eat, can't sleep, I'm consumed, I'm scorched, I'm smitten. And this is the state of the man here. And he's weeping over God's people and God's place. This is what we see. The second portion, verses 12 through 28, has a vision of better things. Okay? It has a vision of better things. And it ends with a calm confidence in God and a sweet restfulness in God. And it's not in a shallow or simplistic way. We see actually sort of the wrestling match of faith unfold. I like what Charles Spurgeon says about this whole psalm. I identify with this. He says, The whole composition may be compared to a day which opening with wind and rain clears up at noon and is warm with the sun, continues fine with intervening showers, and finally closes with a brilliant sunset. Now, growing up on the East Coast and in the Philadelphia area, I, I identify with that illustration, right? We have many a days that do that. Opens up with wind and rain, kind of the sun cracks out from behind the clouds, and then it rains more, and then there's a beautiful sunset at, in the evening. That's what Charles Spurgeon says this psalm is. But the question here then is how does this desperate man get from his place of desperation to a place of calm confidence and restfulness in the Lord? That's the key question. And I'm going to argue that there's two very important conjunctions, both the same word, but, B-U-T, in verses 12, and then there's really two of them in verses 27 and 28 that provide the answer for us this morning of how this guy goes from groaning to gladness in the Lord. And so let's start with the first one in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. There's the first conjunction, but you, O Lord... But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. The writer takes his mind off, and this is so important. He starts to take his mind off of his circumstances and places them on the source of the comfort and the consolation, which is namely the Lord himself. He starts to look at and think about and meditate on not only who God is, but the gracious purposes that he knows that God has for his people. He focuses his mind on the eternality of God and the sovereignty of God. Now look at that verse with me. In the Hebrew, verse 12 actually has, it connotes the idea of sitting. So you could translate uh, this verse something like this. You, O Lord, are seated forever. Or you, O Lord, are forever sitting. That is to say that God is comprehensively ruling. God is comprehensively ruling. And even if his city, his holy city is in disarray, God is unchanged. God is still ruling. The psalmist is saying, essentially, I perish. I just told you about my state, my condition, but you will not. The nation has been pretty much everything but extinct, but you are altogether unchanged, God. You are still ruling. He takes comfort and finds his consolation in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that God is ruling even when our circumstances may cause us to think that he is not. He's ruling. He's seated forever. He doesn't change. The sovereignty of God becomes his unfailing comfort. Look at verse 13. We're just going to provide some running commentary here. You will rise. And I want you to see his confidence build. 
as he makes this conjunction, he takes his mind off of his circumstances. He places it on God and what God's doing. Listen to the building confidence in the next couple verses. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her. For the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. And I think we see the seeds of repentance in that verse 14. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and he has not despised their prayer. Here we see the sun coming out from behind the clouds even more. He writes in verse 18, this will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height From heaven, the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who are doomed to death, that men may tell the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Did you hear his confidence? Now here comes an intervening shower. Look at verse 23 with me. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. And then we see a couple of more contrasts coming our way. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them and they will be changed. Here's that conjunction. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Here we have the doctrine of God's immutability. God's immutability. And God's immutability always shines most brilliantly when it's put against the backdrop of our ever-evolving situation as created beings. Everything that we are and everything in our world is, as J.I. Packer said, pathetically inconstant. Pathetically inconstant. Ever evolving. But that's not the case with God. He's unchanged. And so amidst all the turbulence and instability, God remains the same self-existent, all-sufficient being. And because of that, we know that he will restore his people and his place. And actually, we see in verses 18 through 22, restore upon them a greater glory than they even had prior to that. Charles Spurgeon writes again, listen to this, God lives on. No decay can happen to him or destruction overtake him. What a joy is this. We may lose our dearest earthly friends, but not our heavenly friend. Men's days are often suddenly cut short, and at the longest they are but few. But the years of the right hand of the Most High cannot be counted, for they have neither first nor last, beginning nor end. O my soul, rejoice in the Lord always, since he is always the same. Do you see what's happening for the psalmist? The, the consistency of God is becoming his confidence. And that's the same with us. We are inconstant, but God is constant. When we look at ourselves, we'll just get all kinds of anxious. 
When we look at God, we can find confidence in God's consistency. And so what is true about God, and we see this as the psalmist continues on, what is true about God for our fathers has been true about God for us. And what's true about God for us will be true about God for our children and our grandchildren. And it'll be true about God for our grandchildren's great-grandchildren because God is wholly unchanged. This is the bedrock of the psalmist's confidence. He's essentially saying, I know God's character and God's priorities, and I know that God doesn't change. Therefore, I am full of confidence as it relates to God's place and God's people. One day, future generations will look back on the restoration of Jerusalem and praise Yahweh. This is his confidence, and it's all wrapped up in the immutability, the changelessness of God. So let's define immutability a little bit. What actually is it? I'd like to provide some definitions for you. Okay, To say God is immutable is to say that God does not change. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, the sons of Jacob, have not been consumed. All that God is, he has always been, and all that he has been, he and is, he will ever be. And I think it's helpful to break God's immutability down into three categories. Again, so if you're taking notes, this might be helpful. Three categories for understanding this changelessness of God. First category is this. God does not change in his essence. God does not change in his essence. So whatever God is, obviously the Bible tells us that God is spirit, but beyond that, it's really difficult for us to understand what God is in his core in his fundamental reality, in his essence. But whatever it is, it's wholly unaltered. It does not change. God is not composed of parts that may vary or alter. He's not comprised of any substance or material. The Bible tells us he's spirit and he's perpetually the same. No years can ever mark him. And even in the incarnation, we know that the divine essence was unchanged. So God is unchanged in his essence. What he is, whatever he is, it cannot alter. Number two, God is unchangeable or is not changed in his attributes. God does not change in his attributes. He doesn't change. Let me just give you some examples. He doesn't change in his mercy or his willingness to forgive. He does not change in his mercy or his willingness to forgive. He does not change in his power, in his goodness, in his wisdom, or in his truth. He doesn't change in his faithfulness. 2 Timothy tells us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God does not change in his faithfulness towards us, even when we are faithless towards him. He doesn't change in his love or in the object of his love. He also does not change in his holiness, justice, or in his commitment to punishing sin. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin, catch this, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Why? Because God does not change in his holiness or in his justice or in his commitment to punishing sin. Morally speaking, Maybe this can provide a bit of a summary. Morally speaking, God never goes from better to worse or from worse to better. 
He doesn't change. He doesn't become less truthful or more merciful or less just or more good than he used to be. He never goes from better to worse or worse to better. So God doesn't change in his essence who he is at his core. God doesn't change in his attributes. And then thirdly, I've kind of lumped these together. God does not change in his promises, plans, and purposes. God does not change in his promises, plans, and purposes. God has never begun building something and was unable to finish it. God's decrees and purposes always stand. They never have to be reworked or refashioned in some way. God's promises always come to pass. God's words never, be to, never need to be amended. And we say amen to that, and that's why we trust the Bible, right? His words never need to be amended. Nothing catches God by surprise. So if you're tempted to think in whatever circumstance that you may be walking through that this has somehow caught God by surprise, that would be erroneous. Nothing catches God by surprise. None of his words ever need to be altered. His promises, his purposes, and his plans are fixed. They're established. So God doesn't change in his essence, his attributes, or in his promises and plans. So the big question is for this morning, why does that matter? And I'm going to try to answer that for you. Why does it matter? And particularly, why does it matter for our prayer life? And here's how we're going to answer that. If nothing that God has ever said about himself or his plans will ever be modified, track with this, and God's attitude towards his creatures is the same as it has eternally been and eternally will be, there are certain things that we no longer have to wonder about. Okay, and I've made a list. It's not an exhaustive list. It might be a good exercise for you this week to make your own list. But I want to just run through a few things that we never have to wonder about because we know that God is immutable. Here's a few. We never need wonder if we will find God in a receptive mood. When we come to him in prayer, we never have to wonder if he is in a receptive mood, if he wants to talk to us. He's always in a receptive mood. Number two, we never need wonder if he cares about our problems. He's told us to dump our burdens upon him, to cast our anxieties on him. He doesn't change. We never have to wonder if he cares about our problems, the little problems or the big problems. He cares about them and he doesn't change. We never need to wonder if his attitude towards us has taken an unexpected turn. So often in our lives, men's opinion of us their attitude towards us shifts and changes with the day, but not so with God. God's attitude towards us is ever the same. We never have to fear that we've some so, somehow fallen out of his goodwill, out of his graces. He doesn't think as highly of us as he, he used to think of us. No, we never have to wonder about that because God is unmoved. God is unchanged. His attitude towards us never unexpectedly turns. We never need to wonder if he desires the salvation of those whom we love who are currently lost. Why do we never have to wonder about that? Well, he tells us in his word that he desires the salvation of all men. So we don't have to wonder about that. We can live as though God wants those who we want to be saved to be saved even more strongly than we want them to be. We never need wonder if his plans for us are to prosper. And catch this, even if that prosperity comes through unrelenting trial. We never have to wonder about that. 
His plans are to prosper his people. And sometimes the mechanism by which he chooses to do that is a lot of pain and suffering, but the end result is always the same. Prosperity. We never need to wonder, and I love this because I think lots of us struggle with this. If we confess our sin, we never need to wonder whether we've been totally cleansed. For he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from how much all of our unrighteousness? All unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. So listen closely this morning. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he what? He always lives to make intercession for them. You have a savior and a friend who is wholly reliable, trustworthy, and true. And so I would just say, if you haven't been, just go and try him. And then go and try him again. And again, and again. I love the, the hymn um, that just goes, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him. Or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. I think A.W. Tozer summarizes this thought nicely. Listen closely to his thought. He, God, is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours, nor set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment, he feels towards his creatures, towards babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. His attitude towards sin is now the same as it was when he drove out the sinful man from the Eastwood Garden, and his attitude toward the sinner the same as when he stretched forth his hands and cried, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If we meditate on this, and this is the key, you actually have to think about it for these truths to do anything in your life. But if we actually think about God's immutability, if we let this penetrate us down into the deep resources of our heart and soul, okay, what this can bring is actually incredible peace into our lives. Right? It can actually bring peace into our lives because a few things, when men forget us and change their opinion about us at the drop of a hat, we can cling to the immutable Christ who says, I don't change. I don't change. And when our circumstances tempt us to think that God has left us, you can say to your soul in that moment that that proposition is totally impossible because God himself said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And when your sins tempt to weigh you down and bury you, you can bank on the fact that his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness and his faithfulness is greater than our failure. This is what the, the doctrine of the God's immutability can do for us if we think about it. And if we experience great loss, we can remember that God's ability to comfort is unchanged. It's unchanged, it's unmoved. So we're never gonna know, guys, all that God is doing in our lives. But we can take it to the bank that we know he's doing it with a fatherly heart we know he's doing it with a gentle and lowly spirit, and we know he's doing it with the eye for his glory, which is the same thing as doing it for our good. Right? We know that. 
So we don't know the intricacies and the details of everything God's doing, but we know how God is acting because we know what God does and who God is because it's revealed for us in the eternal word of God and God does not change. He doesn't change and it can bring comfort to our soul. I want to read something to you and then maybe I'm going to ask us with the remaining time to do something that we uh, don't typically do, but uh, we'll get there in a second. I might just ask you to grab a couple people around you and just spend a few moments Uh, thanking God for this characteristic of his and how it can change the way that we uh, go about our Christian lives. But let me read something to you before we do that. Uh, A friend of mine wrote this, I think, let's see, 2007, so seven years ago or so, so five or seven years ago. And he wrote this, and I always come back to this uh, as sort of a profound thought. And I think it provides just kind of a nice conclusion before we maybe move into a time Uh, of focusing on God's immutability in prayer. He wrote this. It's called, What God Will Do. What God Will Do. He says, What God will do is not ours to tell. We don't know, and we can't know. We see him from below, and we await the revelation of his plan. At the same time, what God will do is truly foreseeable. We do know because we can know. He's revealed himself from above, and we have even now the blueprint of his plan. How can we say that we don't know God's plan and that we do know God's plan at the same time? We don't know all the details of what he'll do, but we do know the grand purposes he aims to accomplish, the fatherly heart fueling his acts, and the covenant love with which he's bound himself to us and us to him. We even know the particular kinds of goals he weaves into particular kinds of situations because he's told us. So while I don't know what God is doing because I can't, I do know what God is doing because I can. He will love us. He will lead us. He will protect us and he will provide for us. He will humble us without crushing us, protect us without babying us, and train us without harming us. He will keep his promises, which means that his promises have already written our future story. He will do good to us and for us and in us because he is good and he does good. He will root faith deeper and lift our hope higher because he wants both our worship and our witness to expand. So many things that God will do are utterly unclear to my sight, but so many things God will do are entirely clear to my faith. So clarity depends not on my circumstances or how much of my present path is unveiled before me, but on whether I'm walking by faith or by sight. I don't know exactly what God will do, but I know exactly what God will do. Right? And I think this is the psalmist here. He's looking out with his eyes on Jerusalem. He's looking out with his eyes on a ravaged state. And with his eyes... He sees a ravaged state, but with his faith, he sees a restored nation. And all of that is bound up in the understanding of God's changelessness. And so what was true for him can be true for you and me too. We can look at a difficult circumstance with our eyes, but with our faith, we can look at that difficult circumstance totally different because God is unchanged. Amen? Okay, so what I'd like to do, I tried to finish early. I have no idea what time it is or whether I accomplished that. Um, but I tried to finish early, and nobody will fault you if you, if you need to go. 
Um, but I tried to finish early so that we could just group up with some people who are close to you and pray for six things. I'm going to list them for you. Um, and just spend a few moments, maybe five, moments, uh, five minutes tops, thanking God for these realities. Okay, here are the six things. And if you don't remember them perfectly, that's fine. Spend time thanking God for these six things. God's life does not change. God's character does not change. God's truth does not change. God's ways do not change. God's purposes do not change. And maybe the most important one, God's son does not change. God's son does not change. So why don't I just close us in a quick word of prayer and then we'll move into a time of uh, just small group prayer um, and then we'll conclude. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your immutability and what it can mean for us. If we just think about it and believe it. Uh, We know the psalmist went from desperate to a calm confidence and sweet restfulness in you. And what was true for him is true for us because we worship the same God, even though millennia in terms of years separate us. But you're the same. Your years never come to an end. This is at the core of what it means for you to be faithful and trustworthy in our lives. And Lord, so I just pray for me and my friends here that we would take your promises to the bank, Lord, knowing that they are fixed, that they are true. And I just pray, Lord, that those promises would impact the way that we live and that we would be changed uh, by the changeless God that we worship. So we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.